Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff. This week on the show, we are talking about the best video game of 2019 because we are assholes. And last week, we left y'all hanging. We uh, got to the end of our top 10 list of, of 2019. We were finally doing our top 10 video games of 2019. And we're like, you know what? I think this number one game, it deserves its own episode. And that's what we are doing today because Sean... Our number one game of the year, why don't we say it together, is Sekiro... Shadows Die Twice. Yes, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. That is the topic of today's episode. The game is almost a year old, but we have finally both played it. We have put a substantial amount of time into it, and better late than never, I think it is time Sekiro gets its own episode. Because if ever a video game deserved its own episode, Sekiro deserves its own episode. Yes, um, you know, it, it is a game that I have talked about... A lot on this podcast, Jonathan, because you talked about it a lot when it came out. I talked about it a lot when I was sort of consoling you while you were in your early stages of playing Sekiro. I talked about it a lot um, in... I mean, I'll just go ahead and dive into it. One of my awards for Sekiro Shadows Die Twice is the fifth best game of the 2010s award because it was the fifth best game of the decade on my decade list. So, you know, it is the most obvious number one in the history of number ones on any list we've done this podcast because we I already talked about it in a podcast that came out before this. It would be very funny for this to be the fifth best game of the decade and not be the best game of the year it came out in um, because there's nothing else that quite yes. um, is up there. Yeah, I mean, it was another one of hold on another one of my awards on that I give it is the most entertaining secondhand video game experience of the year for witnessing uh, your circuitous journey through Sekiro because it has been uh, a big thing for you this year. It is. Now, we'll get into it in just a second. I'm thinking for the listeners coming back after last week, should we give them a quick recap of where we were on the top 10 list? Sure. Yes. So. My number 10, so this, this was our top 10 before we very cruelly left off after number 2. My number 10 was Tetris 99. My number 10 was Death Stranding. My number 9 was Shovel Knight, King of Cards. And my number 9 was Year 2 of Dragon Ball Legends. My number 8 was Fire Emblem, Three Houses. My number 8 was Call of Duty Modern Warfare. My number 7 was Star Wars Jedi, Fallen Order. And my number 7 was also Star Wars Jedi... Fallen Order. My number six was Metal Wolf Chaos XD. I still can't fucking believe you... Yeah. My number six is Control. An actual video game. My number five is Astral Chain. My number five is Dragon Quest Builders 2. My number four is Pokemon Shield. And my number four is Devil May Cry 5. My number three was Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. And my number three is Judgment. My number two is Dragon Quest Builders 2. And my number two is Outer Wilds. All right, now that we're all caught up, yes, Sean, I am happy to accept. Do I get the award for most securitist journey, or or is it for Sekiro? Um, both. I think you both get the trophy. <laughs> okay. You are a, a, a team. Okay. It's a team event. I think that's good. I will accept it on behalf of Sekiro because Hidetaka Miyazaki is not here to accept the award. Uh, so here, I will take it for, through the screen from you. Thank you very much, Sean. Yeah. It's a hell of a trophy you've got here. Um... It's just it's just Sekiro's severed arm, not the yeah, it's, not the it's, robot prosthetic. It's the flesh and blood severed arm. Yeah, it's Sekiro's severed arm, and then it's just like a, a character of your face with a puzzled look, like trying to figure <laughs> out what to do. So, do we do we want to start by telling the people about my circuitous journey through Sekiro: Shadows Die Twice? 
Yeah, because everybody knows how I feel about this game. I talked about it for like 20 minutes or whatever in a podcast that released not that long ago for the end of the decade. It's very good. It's one of my favorite games ever. It's one of the best games of the past 10 years. It's it's the best game of this year. Um, I mean, this year being 2019, because we're recording this podcast very late. Um, And it's just so fucking good, and it's great, and it's amazing for a lot of reasons that we'll continue to talk about, and I will say again on this podcast. Um, But I don't know how you feel about it. Other than it took you, like, seven months or something to beat Genichiro? I don't know. Yes. So let's back up. Sekiro, if you haven't been following, is the latest game from From Software, the people most famous for Dark Souls and Bloodborne, um, and, and the Hidetaki Miyazaki team at, at FromSoft, because FromSoft has a long history, but it becomes a very different company under Miyazaki, obviously. And earlier this year, Sean, we kind of have to back up to, over the summer... I got a hankering to start playing difficult video games. And it started with me playing Castlevania Rondo of Blood. Um, And I was like, oh, that was kind of fun. That was a hard, old, you know, tough-as-nails game. That was fun. And then Cuphead launched on Nintendo Switch. And I had never... I had dabbled in Cuphead a little bit, but I thought it was too hard for me. And I thought, you know what? I want to prove it's not too hard for me. And I did. And I wound up loving Cuphead, and I beat everything in the game... And I adored that game, and I'm like, okay, maybe I can bite off some more. And at that point, it was summer, and I didn't have a job because I couldn't find a summer job. And I was falling into credit card debt. (laughs) I thought, how can I escape this? And I bought Dark Souls Remastered on the Switch because at the time, I was staying for the summer at my parents' house. Um, Not the whole summer, but I was there for a couple weeks. And I just had my Switch on me, and so I bought Dark Souls, and... I fell in love with Dark Souls. You can go hear the whole story of that because it did take me a little while on that too. As I think Dark Souls is meant to, it, Dark Souls is not a game you are meant to fall in love with in in the Undead Asylum. I think it's fair to say. Um, so I had to get past the the fucking uh, the gargoyles, the, those goddamn bell gargoyles. But I did it, and then Dark Souls is one of my favorite games of all time. Maybe like number one, depending on how I feel. Um, and then at that point, Sean, you had been talking up Sekiro, which is their new ninja. It's got samurai elements, but he is a shinobi. He's a ninja. And, and you were talking it up, and I thought, okay, well, I'm into FromSoft now. I should play Sekiro. So I bought Sekiro, and I started playing it, and it was amazing. And I should say, pretty much right off the bat, Sekiro, even when I was bad at it and couldn't beat it, was, I thought, the best game of the year. And it continued even through games I played to completion because nothing else wowed me like Sekiro does. The, you know, I have not played uh, Dark Souls 3 and Bloodborne, those kind of in-between steps. But, like, just the jump in, like, production values and and how they have approached storytelling and the graphical jump that FromSoft made and the specific choices they make with Sekiro, it, it is impressive right off the bat. But yes, it is a very tough game. I will say right off the bat, Sekiro is the hardest game I've ever played to completion. There is no contest. I think it makes dark parts of Dark Souls that I found tough at the time look like a walk in the fucking park. Sekiro is brutally, brutally difficult. And we can get into the reasons why later. Because I am very much on team Sekiro is harder than Dark Souls. I know there's an argument about that. But I don't I really don't understand the other question. side of the argument. Yeah, yeah like... like- you know, I would have to sit and think a little bit about whether or not it's the hardest game I've ever beaten, but it's probably it's like top two or three. Like maybe Ninja Gaiden um, on the original Xbox. That game was also fucking hard. Um, although some of that was because it was also there was some cheap shit in that game. Um, yeah. But but yeah, Sekiro 
I think is unquestionably significantly more difficult than Dark Souls. In anything in Dark Souls, other than like some of like the secret like extra challenges, like the secret boss in Dark Souls Three, I don't think anything in any Dark Souls game touches fucking most of the hard shit in Sekiro. Yeah, because Sekiro is this game that you know, if Dark Souls had to reteach you how to play a game, Sekiro has to unteach you Dark Souls and then reteach you again, which is mm-hmm. part of what makes it, I think, such an amazing masterpiece. But it is very hard. And so at the time, I just kept hitting walls, one of which was Madame Butterfly down in the Hirata Estate. And Madame yeah. Butterfly is where one of my two, two DualShock 4s was um, sacrificed in the line of duty. <laughs> it hit a wall and the triggers shattered. And the button that specifically broke is L1, which is the posture button. <laughs> Which was like, I felt very symbolic for what Sekiro is. The yeah. button that is, it's the most important button in the game, right, Sean? Oh, yes. No, it is 100%. <laughs> it is like you breaking L1 is basically like, at the same time, fucking Sekiro's fucking sword in the game should have just shattered and like broken his feet. Like, this is basically yes. what you just did. So, I did eventually beat Madam Butterfly. But I was jumping between Madam Butterfly and Genichiro because I'd basically gone as far as you could. I had played 20 hours in the game at that point, and I could not figure out Genichiro. And somewhere in there, I decided to go back into the warm embrace of Dark Souls, and I played Dark Souls 2, which is not a very good... Well, I mean, it's a good game. It's just not a very good Dark Souls game. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good game that is um, like sandwiched between some of the best games ever made. That's a great way to put it, yeah. Like, I don't want to, like, go out there and pretend, like, Dark Souls 2 is bad. I know, It's not Sonic 06 or anything. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's probably easier than Sonic 06, honestly. Uh, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Sonic 06 um, might be the hardest game I've ever beaten, now that I think about it. Because, you know, Sekiro's hard, but the floor doesn't just disappear underneath you. Yes. Oh, man. But anyway, yeah. Um, so, uh, I played Dark Souls 2, I kept trying to go back to Sekiro, and eventually I just kind of admitted defeat. I think it was at the point where Fire Emblem Three Houses came out, was like, I started playing that and I kind of was like... And it was sad, because I just, I felt dispirited, you can probably hear it on an old episode of the podcast, where I just felt like I wasn't good enough. And you, Sean, very kindly, and I don't think you were just patronizing me, you were really trying to encourage me, you said, Jonathan... You can beat this game. I don't think like you're that bad a player. You can do it. And you were right. Because I think I just... I had not... Because what I thought... Well, we should... Let me back up. <laughs> so yeah. again, the, every FromSoft Miyazaki game has the toll... Pay your toll boss, right? It has... Yeah. The, the Bell Gargoyles is the one in Dark Souls 1, which is like... You are not getting past this point if you can't prove you understand the game. And that makes it the hardest point in that game in one sense, in that, like, there are technically harder bosses than the Bell Gargoyles, but the Bell Gargoyles definitely gave me the most trouble because I had to learn how to play the game to beat them. Like, yeah. Ornstein and Smaug are played... harder, but, but they, yeah. they were easier in the sense that I knew how to play it once I got to them. Yeah, for people who played Bloodborne but not necessarily played Dark Souls, it would be Father Gascoin is the boss in Bloodborne. That is the clear, like, if you have not learned some of the stu- shit around, like, the gun parry mechanics and stuff in that game. He's like the second or third boss. That boss is like basically impossible to beat if you don't really know what you're doing. And I kind of thought I had already gotten past that point because Genichiro comes much later in Sekiro than those bosses mm-hmm. come in the other FromSoft games. There's a much longer lead up to him. You feel like you're deeper into the game. And so I didn't have that same feeling, but I also realized 
on my second playthrough, which we'll talk about in a little bit, I really hadn't internalized and learned it enough. And so I think that's what it was, because all the things you were saying to me, Sean, about like, Genichiro isn't as hard as you think he is. You need to know kind of this, this, and this. I kind of thought, oh, but, you know, I guess I'm just bad at it. But I was wrong. Because what happened is, in preparation for... I, I always... Sekiro was in the back of my mind. as like, I have to go back and finish it. So when I got back from Japan, my Japan trip, I was kind of encouraged... Like, that Japan trip really gave me a kick in the, in the pants for this because... It reminded me, like Sekiro's art design is so evocative of all these places Mm -hmm. I saw, especially in Kyoto, like ancient Japan places, that when I got back, I really wanted to play it again. And so I decided when I got back to Iowa and I had my PS4 again, I was like, okay, I think the best thing for me to do is start a fresh playthrough. Maybe not play through all the way to Genichiro that way and do everything, but like just try to re-ingratiate myself. And that's what I did. So I started at Ground Zero again. I started playing the game. I'm having fun. And I also started focusing on things like the parry mechanics and posture more. And I really, like, I spent more time training with the undead dude. And I spent more time, like, focusing on certain upgrades and, like, thinking about the game. And I started to get it. Like, I got to the point where, you know, the random guys who, you know, kind of patrol the the, the areas, I could just run up to them, hit once, let them hit back, parry, 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 stab. You know? And you're mm-hmm. done. And I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get this. And some of the bosses who kicked my ass the first time were not kicking my ass anymore. Like, I pretty much knew how to do it. Like, I moved through. I got to Genichiro in my first playthrough at, like, 16 hours. I got to him in eight hours, you know? It's like I cut my time in half. I really knew what I was doing. The one thing I did not redo on that playthrough is Madam Butterfly. I had too much PTSD from it. And I'm like, you know what? I've already (laughs) proven myself. But I did, once I got back up to Genichiro, I felt pretty, like, I felt like... I, I, I got up to Genichiro, I ran up to the roof, I started the fight, I lost, but in losing, I just had this feeling of like, I can do this. I, I like, I see it. It's like I saw the matrix. It's like I saw the code and I'm like, I know what it means. And it didn't mean I could master it that second, but I knew what I was doing. And so at that point, I went back to my original save file because I had more stuff unlocked. I'd beaten Madam Butterfly. I had more um, health and stuff like that. Um... So I went back to my original save file, picked up from there. Um, I did have to grind a little bit because there was this one. There's the um, uh, Ichimonji, the one where you go overhead and just... I love that move where you go smack down on people. Mm -hmm. I had unlocked that on my second file, but not on my first. So I did go grind for like half an hour to make sure I had Ichimonji because I really liked that. And I think I wound up using that in Genichiro. It actually came in handy for one part of him. It's um, definitely one of the best moves in the game, especially once you get the double Ichimonji. Um, yes. Yeah. Double Ichimonji helped me a lot in uh, the final fight of the game. But yes, so so I had Ichimonji, I had that, and then one day, I think it was a Saturday, because I had the day off, this, this is the only way this would have worked, is I just, I sat down in the morning, like I had a little bit of breakfast, I sat down at my TV, and I'm like, I'm not getting up until I beat Genichiro. It took about three hours, but I did it, I beat Genichiro, I felt so happy and it really had this sense of, like, I'm all-powerful, you know? Because nothing in the game quite challenged me to that level. As evidenced by the fact that I'm sitting here two weeks later, not seven months later. Like, Ishin the Sword Saint is the hardest thing in, like, any game I've ever done. But he, paradoxically, did not give me as much trouble as Genichiro because I knew the game. I spoke the language, you know? Yeah. Um and that was kind of my arc. And I, I kind of soared through the second half of that game, which saying second half isn't even right because 
Genichiro is like a third of the game. My mm-hmm. final play clock, I think, was 47 hours when I beat Ishin. And then you add on the 10 hours of my second play file, and that's 57. So around 60 hours to fully, for all of my play of Sekiro, without a new game plus or anything. Um, it didn't even feel that long, because there's just so much. Like, that second half of the game, just there's so many areas, and there's so many things to do. And it's it opens up so much in so many interesting ways. Um and and I, as much as I had loved the game up to Genichiro, I hadn't even seen what makes Sekiro so truly special. And it is a truly special game in every way imaginable. And where it really does start and end is with just the best action combat I've ever seen in anything. The most, the game that is, I think, even better than a Dark Souls, the best at teaching you how to play it. Because it is so, it is going for such a weird specific thing. But when it locks in, it locks in in a way I've never felt in a video game. It really does feel like learning a language or learning a piece of music. Because once you learn it, it just experientially is a different thing. And that is wild. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, I remember, like, one one of my favorite podcast moments. I don't know if it's a great podcast to listen to, but it was a really fun one to record. Was the, like, 40-minute, like therapy session where you were just stuck at Genichiro and I had to give you the pep talk of like no you can do this Jonathan like this the game is not impossible it's it's not as hard as, as you think it is um here's maybe some tips to help you out I remember we had the conversation on that podcast about um that this is this is the father gas coin this is the bell gargoyles this is like the hurdle you have to overcome early in the game to um understand it and like kind of really get it and you're like no but but those are like super early and this is like halfway through the game and genichiro is does take longer to get to genichiro he's deeper in the game relatively than father gascoin or belgor goes but i was like nothing it's not you're you are not halfway through the game you're not as far into the game as you think it is as you think you are you've played you spent a lot of time on the game because you've died a lot and it's fucking hard but yeah it was this just moment of like please jonathan you don't know there's most of this game is still in front of you which is an intentional i feel like trick mm-hmm. on Miyazaki's part because getting to Genichiro does feel like you're you're you've made significant progress because you start the game your goal is being to get to Ashina Castle and rescue Kuro and like that is what that is and the game does make a significant shift after that but the game just gets so much bigger than you could imagine you know yeah mm-hmm. it's it's something else there is so much to break down in this fucking game Sean where would you like to start now that we've we've, we've talked about my I've present I've accepted my award. Yes. Um I guess just to, to I'll give it um another award, which is the Akira Kurosawa Presents Best Action Award. Um this a couple years when go went to Neo. Um and I think it's only fitting that it now goes to Sekido, um, which is the other samurai Dark Souls game, basically. Um that yeah, the I mean, th- th- this is the thing with me for Sekiro. I mean, everything else about Sekiro is amazing. The level design is amazing. The art design is gorgeous. The music is fucking fantastic. It even has, I think, a really effective story. Um, like, great character design. All that kind of stuff. Monster design. Um, the voice acting. Oh, my God. Yes, yeah. There's not a huge amount of it, but what is there is very good. Um, particularly the actor who plays um, Ishin. I just adore his fucking performance. It's so good. It's one of my favorite, like, old like samurai feudal lord performances um which is a good like subgenre of Jaffe's vocal performance 
Um, I also have to give a shout out to um, the, the the guy who plays Genichiro. I'm trying to find his name. He is also, I mean, he's in a ton of stuff, but he's yes. Seto Kaiba in Yu-Gi-Oh! And he is one of my favorite Japanese voice actors. His performance as Kaiba is just legendary good. He has this like quality of like the way he kind of like whisper speaks words that is so fucking amazing. And just, you know, in, in Yu-Gi-Oh! it comes out through how he says stuff like, Blue Eyes White the Dragon. And he brings that to this game as well. And it is just so, I, I love every second he has on screen in this game. Yes, no, yeah, he is also very good. Um, yeah, but everyone in the game is fantastic at that stuff. So all that stuff is very good. But at its core, this game, like more so than any other from software game of the modern era, is about the combat. It is it is so much about like the sort of the dance between you and your opponents. Um, usually in like the duels, which are like the major boss fights. Uh, and it is it is so particular. It's so precise. It is very much its own thing. Um, and and the game strips out. Um, I guess this is something to talk about. Um, it's sort of relationship to Dark Souls and Bloodborne in those games is that it completely strips out um, the RPG elements. Like the only things it remains is that you you do level up technically, um, which each level up gives you a skill point. You spend those skill points on a skill tree. You can unlock different things in the skill tree as you progress through the game. There are like a handful of items you get. You have the Shinobi tools in your Shinobi prosthetic, which is the closest you get to like here's a big new weapon or something that you get in Dark Souls. But you have the katana you have at the beginning of the game is the katana you're using at the end of the game. You have some supplementary abilities that you add on top of the moveset you already have. But it's not like Dark Souls where if you wanted in Dark Souls, if you were using a hand axe, you could say, eh, fuck this hand axe. I want to use the scimitar. And you kind of, you know, the combat is, you know, at its core the same, but all the animations and timing are very different for all the weapons in Dark Souls. So you kind of learn whatever build you want. You could use, you could spec into magic, you could use bows, all that kind of stuff. Bloodborne limited that a little bit, but still has a lot of those RPG elements. Um, you could upgrade your weapon to do more damage. You could go farm souls to level up your strength or whatever to boost your damage or health to get more health. And all of those RPG things are either incredibly simplified into like shinobi tools or skill trees or outright removed to make it so that the combat can be reliably designed around a set of abilities that the designers know the player has. It, so the player knows exactly, or the designer knows exactly what your offensive options are. They know what your attack speed is, know how much damage you're going to do at basically any major encounter in the game. So it can be designed around that, which means that you there are fights you can cheese in Sekiro by like exploiting like, AI glitches and stuff like that. Um, there's some things you can do like that that are a little bit cheesy. But there's nothing like in Dark Souls where you can make a magic build or an archer build that like you are intentionally specking your character with specific mechanics to actively cheese boss fights in the game, which was always an option in any of the other um, Dark Souls or From Software games. In Sekiro, that entire dimension is just outright right, removed to make it a much more explicitly action-based game. Um, which I know some people don't like, um, but since I was already edging that way with the way I played Dark Souls in the first place, um, with the way I played Bloodborne was very mobile, um, like action-focused kind of stuff, and I kind of stayed away from magic. They basically just made a Dark Souls game for me, um, but I get why some people didn't like it, but I feel like it gives this game such a razor-sharp focus that is one of the main reasons why the action gets to be as refined as it is, is that it doesn't have to accommodate for... Um, the incredible range of options that would have been available to you if it was more of an RPG. 
Yeah, and I want to say, like, I love that about Dark Souls. I, I yes. love the openness, and it's it's so much part of the fun and community of that game. And, like, I just have fond memories with my playthrough of Dark Souls of, like, you know, sometimes I would just completely sort of rebuild myself for a fight and try something totally new. Like, I used an axe for most of that game, an axe and a crossbow. And then, you know, at one point, I think it was when I was in On Orlando, I, I got to a point where I decided to to do... No, because it was after An Orlando, because that's when you do Ornstein and Smaug. And I was still... Like, I ran that those games, like, almost naked for a long time, because I just wanted speed and mobility. And then there was a point where I'm like, well, this isn't working so well. So I got, like, the big, like, stone armor set and ran a super heavy build. And it became... And you play the game just completely differently at that point, yep. you know? And that's not even factoring in magic. I don't even know how you use magic in Dark Souls because I didn't touch it in my in my playthrough of that. Um, and that's part of the fun is, is like experimenting. Sekiro, that fun is not in this game, but what it has in replacement of that and what makes it so special and unique and different is that it forces you to just confront the actual combat system that is in front of you. And as you say, Sean, it makes these boss fights and encounters that are incredibly focused because, as you say, they they know what you have, which also means that what you're learning to do is a lot more focused and specific. And the Mm -hmm. feeling of accomplishment, like every FromSoft game has this feeling of accomplishment that's very high and very rewarding. I I think of it as the exhale. Like you can judge a FromSoft boss by how hard you... At the end of the fight, right? Like how hard you just let your breath out. And Sekiro, to me, has the hardest exhales, at least of the ones I've played, because what you're doing is it's like you're mastering a piece of music or something. It's like you have to hit all the notes rather than in Dark Souls sometimes. Even you don't, it doesn't have to be cheesing it, but maybe you just play a different instrument, you know? It's like, no, you have this instrument, and this instrument is creating a massive fucking bloodbath with a katana, and you're going to get really good at it. And and you feel like you've gotten really, really good. And it's, it's, it's fucking magical. Absolutely. So this game is a lot more fresh for you because I haven't played it since like June or whatever when I did my second yeah. playthrough. So why don't we go through some of like the areas and encounters and stuff that really stand out to you and kind of yeah. talk through some of that stuff so we can dig into some of the specifics of the game. Because there are lots of great big moments and ridiculous shit that happens that's really cool in this game. Oh, it's wild. And I think, like, just we can't overstate enough at the top of this episode or this discussion just how good the art direction is in Sekiro. Mm -hmm. It is so gorgeous. When I went to Japan, I really realized how, and then coming back and seeing the second half of the game, it is so accurate to how these places in Japan look. It gets so many things right about, like, how temples feel. Like, there's the part where... Oh, I forget what this area is called, but it's the area that the, the like giant lifts you up to in Sekiro, um, yes. which is yeah, an amazing the, moment on its own. I think it's the Minamoto um, temple or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the like one in the sky, and you go through some of those, and it's where all the like the Buddhists are who you fight, and mm-hmm. that's kind of funny. But you go through this one temple, and I, I was playing that part with my headphones on, and I realized. Do you remember on the Japan episode of the podcast, Sean, I told you about at uh, Matsumoto Castle, I learned about like the floors squeak in a certain way because of the way the nails are put in and how over time the nails in the wood start making a squeak when enough weight is put on it. When you, at Matsumoto Castle, it was really noticeable because there's hundreds of people in there moving on the wood, and you it sounded like birds chirping. In Sekiro, it's usually just you running around, but that chirp is in the game. 
And it's at like the right frequency for one shinobi who's kind of light of feet running around. And there's like that attention to detail everywhere. When you see like the interior of a temple and you have like the Buddhist statue, it's so true to source. It really, it like, it's like when you, you know, you smell something and a memory kind of comes in. Sekiro was like that for me after I went to Japan where I'm like, so much of it is like, oh my God, this makes me remember this place I was in this place. But even if you haven't been to Japan, it is so beautiful and evocative. And of course, there are places that go into a realm of much purer fantasy or in some cases, you know, abject gothic horror, um, which Miyazaki likes to do. And it is it is stunning throughout. And it's kind of funny, like the first stretch of the game, like everything in the, the Ashina castle outskirts and in the castle itself and the Hirata estate is very sober relatively. Like it is just a, a big like magistral uh, estate. Um, and that part's really cool, but you have no idea what you're in for in that second half when you start going to some really crazy places. Yeah, because it is one of those where... Um, compared to Dark Souls or Bloodborne, Sekiro starts out very grounded and just feels like this is just like samurai ninja kind of stuff. Um, it's like a little bit exaggerated because, you know, anything ninja is going to be a little bit exaggerated. But yeah, as you go deeper into the game, particularly after the Genichiro turn, um, where especially when he uses the Tomoe stuff and he has fucking lightning powers, he's like a weird zombie lightning boy. You're like, what the fuck? And then... And then yeah, and then, you, you know, you have the giant snake, you have um, the ape, the guardian ape, you've got, like, a village of ghosts um, with, like, the weird squid man that is one of, like, the people from the Minamoto Palace, um, and, yeah, then eventually you go there, you fight a fucking, you fight basically Shenron from Dragon Ball, um, and that's a cool moment. Yeah, and, and and then you fight, you know, the the sword say himself, Ishin revived from his prime, basically. Um, yeah, crawling people... out of the back of his grandson. Yeah, it's so God, it's so good. Um, but yeah, so as you go deeper into the game, the more like fantasy um, elements and like dark fantasy in a very Miyazaki way elements intrude into the more grounded reality you have at the beginning. And then I like how that kind of then wraps around to Ashina Castle that like as you revisit that location multiple times over the course of the game each time it goes it's like descends more and more into madness as if the enemies invade and then at the end everything's just on fire the fucking sculptor has turned into Ashura and he's just like laying waste um because he's become a demon of hatred and it's like fucking man everything's gone crazy I'm fighting a zombie man that popped out of his grandson um and then I have to you know deliver one of the multiple endings in the game that probably involves me killing my immortal lord boy that I've been serving for the game. Yes, indeed. And I'm very excited to talk about the endings because I don't even know what ending you got. Um, so I'm excited to talk about these. Um, but yeah, it's... And we should also talk about like the layout of the game is this kind of interesting mix where it's it's more modular than Dark Souls. It's got some definite like Demon Souls, Dark Souls 2 elements where it's got like kind of branching areas. But I think it does that better than at least Dark Souls 2. I haven't played all of Demon's Souls. I've played just a little bit of it. Um, but like Dark Souls 2, like the areas that branch, some are interesting, some are less interesting, but none of them give me the full kind of like Metroidvania hit that Dark Souls does. Sekiro is a nice balance where like the Ashina area is very Dark Soulsy, and it's very fun to like find your ways around and get your shortcuts and all of that. And then some of the places that branch out are also, it's kind of like Metroid Prime 3 or, or Jedi Fallen Order in this way, where it's like, 
like small sort of like Metroid boxes where you have areas that are really fun to explore and get to know and learn and master and they're not necessarily all interconnected like you cannot walk through all of Sekiro the way you can Dark Souls um, but I think it does a really good job at balancing that where yes the combat is the main attraction here but exploring the worlds and getting to know the areas and um, feeling like you've sort of mastered the layout of places is also one of the prime pleasures of this game for me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that sort of hub and spoke design, I agree with you. It's I think it's the best that From has done at that, where you have a nice... And it's one of the things I like about the Genichiro structure, is that there's a nice kind of more guided build-up to it with all the Ashina stuff that, as you say, is kind of like an opening Dark Souls area kind of structure. Then you get to Ashina Castle, you beat Genichiro, and then from there, Ashina becomes this hub that spokes off into multiple different locations like the temple and the village below and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and in fact, actually, a lot of those are places you can technically go to before you killed Genichiro. Like, the game definitely funnels you towards Genichiro, but if you want, you can say, like, yeah, fuck it, I want to go to the fucking Tsunoji Temple or whatever it's called and go do some shit over there. And if you do that, there are some subtle things that are different. Like, I think it's that the, the head monk there... Um, that is dead if you go there after you've killed Genichiro is still alive if you go before you've killed Genichiro because that time has not passed yet because time passes um, after Genichiro is killed. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. I didn't actually know you could get to Senpoji before that. So that's really yep. neat. Um, so let's talk about the Ashina area a little bit. I mean, first off, just like the opening of this game is so good where you're in the mm-hmm. Ashina Reservoir and you, you, I mean, the game has this great circular structure where the first thing you do in the game is fight Genichiro in that big open field that looks like it came out of Akira Kurosawa's id and you get your arm cut off and your ass handed to you and then you meet the, the, uh, the sculptor. sculptor. Yeah. I love the sculptor. His old man voice is mm-hmm. so, I can't believe that anyone can have a voice that gravelly, but it is incredible. Yeah, and I just love that he's just sitting there fucking carving out Buddhas and just surrounded by these old Buddhas that he's, like, like dozens of them that he's carved. Yep. Um, and he's, you know, missing an arm, so he's clearly, like, it's not... Like, it's one of the things I like about Sekido is they they don't go for the literal, like like cycles of history thing that like dark souls does literally as you play dark souls one, two and three, there's like literal, like the linking of the flame and all that shit here. It's more this sort of like metaphorical and implied cycle of at some point in the sculptor's past, he was a warrior like you are. He lost his arm. Um, and then as you go through the end of the game and you kind of piece together his story, you know, he's, he is a vision of what you could become if you could not let go of, your hatred, and that's why he becomes the Shura, the demon of hatred, which right. you can go down that path if you want to get the bad ending. Um, but, like, he, he's this vision of, like, a potential fate for Sekido, um, without it literally being like, oh, this is the last, like, adventurer that tried to link the flame and that kind of thing. It's more just sort of symbolic, which I like. Yeah, my initial prediction, which I forget if we said this on the podcast or not, but I know I said it to you, is that I'm like, is he like literally Sekiro, like come back from the future? Because that was like my prediction and they don't go that way route with it, which I'm ultimately happy about. But like right off the bat, it's not you wouldn't be wrong to predict that, like based on some of FromSoft's other stuff, too. But yeah, so I love all of the intro stuff. And then, you know, you're kind of just free to go fucking explore and yes it, it roughly guides you towards Ashina Castle but it's it's a really great sense of progression to get there it's funny now I think about like the bosses and mini bosses in that area strike me as so like simple now but mm-hmm. at the time some of them are tough like there's the 
there's the guy on your way up who it's the like first time you meet one of those big giants who's like shackled and you you break him yeah. out and then you fight him and he's on the stairs. That one gave me so much trouble. And I think on my second playthrough I beat him in like two tries because um, I kind of knew what to do. But especially because you don't have the fireworks yet probably um, and you can't like stun him. It's it's that one's wild. And then you get the big guy oh, who's the it's the general who has like the big spear who's out in the field on the horseback. Yeah, I'm going to look up his name because it's so good, and he's so good, and I love him. Um, yes, because he's it's such that one has such a good sense of scale because he's running. You're in this big open battlefield that's just strewn with dead bodies because there was recently a, a battle here, and you come out and he rides out on this. He's this giant dude on this giant horse with this like inhumanly large spear, and you're this little shinobi guy because Sekiro is like a short little dude, and you're running around, you know, fighting him and. That fight is that fight. I I remember when I first played the game, Sean. I thought that was like the Bell Gargoyles fight, um, and it's it's not. Although no. it does teach you some important things, because like my second playthrough, Sean, I think I beat him in one try because I just like blocked right and I just posture beat him. And like if you know what you're doing, it's 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 really a it, it is a moment that I think where the game kind of plants its flag. Where this is not a game necessarily about like brutally going on the offensive it is about planting your fucking feet letting them come to you and let him you know wield that crazy spear and you will just block hard enough to throw him off and then go on the attack and it, it's it's a really great moment where you realize what the game is going for yeah so his name is gyobu masataka oniwa which is such a good name um he's great and and when he comes out he like announces himself in like that like honorable samurai way like i am gyobu masataka oniwa this like i shall face you in a duel to the death Mairu! and then he comes at you and it's really good um it's i so good. i beat gyobu masataka oniwa on my first try not because i'm some sort of like miracle dark souls player but because i had i was extremely stubborn um because i had gone to the hirata estate before i encountered him <laughs> and i so i the first boss I fought and beat in this game, like proper boss, was Lady Butterfly. I it took me forever. I just sat That's there insane. stubborn. I was like, "You, you fucking motherfucker! I'm going to kill you, you crazy old lady." The moment I realized that Lady Butterfly had a second phase was a like I basically had a goddamn heart attack. I'm like you got to be shitting me. This old lady's got another health bar. Um, um, but yeah, so I. So I beat Lady Butterfly first, and then I was like, oh my god, that was so hard. Not, like, wait, was that an optional boss? God damn it. And then I ran into Gyobu Masataka Oniwa. And compared to Lady Butterfly, that dude's a chump. Like, that guy's nothing. He's he, he's by far the easiest boss in the game. Like, he's barely harder than one of the, like, random mini-bosses you run into. Yes, no, I mean, I agreed, but, like, if you play it like a normal person. Yes. I mean, I just to... didn't realize. I just didn't realize right. that... I thought, I thought there were two paths that you could go down that would eventually intersect. And I didn't realize, oh, this is just the end of the Hero to the State. And it's technically optional, I think. I don't think you yes. have, ever have to beat Lady Butterfly. As I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, I probably... Because then I went and fought Gilbert Masataka Oni. I was like, oh, this guy's very easy. Oh, shit. I probably should have given up, but I was too stubborn. And if I had just gone this, I would have been more powerful when I actually fought Lady Butterfly. Yeah, because you can get to Gyobu like in half an hour if you want. I mean, mm-hmm. he's very close to the front of the game. It's but the game has a does have a weird structure up front, and I'm not sure. I I, th- I wonder if they like could have rejiggered this a little better. But I also kind of like the oddity of it that you can unlock that Hirata Estate in like ten minutes, 
And it's very hard. It's not really the place you should start with because it's very challenging early in the game. Like, it becomes easier later on. Um, but you basically have this memory you can go into. And it's important story-wise because it gives you yes. a lot of the context between Sekiro and, and Kurosama. Um, but you don't have... You, you're right. You don't ever have to do it. And you can kind of, like, go in and kind of pick away at it if you want because you can always, like, get to a dilapid... You can always get to an idol and then kind of come back out. Um, but it's a really fascinating structure that like, if you want to, yeah, you could do Madam Butterfly before Gyobu. That sounds insane to me, but you say it and I'm like, there's nothing in the game preventing you from doing that. Um, but yeah, Madam Butterfly is a motherfucker. That's a hard boss. She's very hard. Like, that's one of those that like, she's very hard. And then on the second playthrough, I kind of cut through her very quickly, especially her second phase scared the shit out of me the first time because she fires all those like weird spirit kind of projectiles at you and then so that was one of those like big moments for me in the game where i realized i was holding myself back tremendously because i was very rarely ever sprinting because in the back of my head if you sprint Mm -hmm. in one of these games you're draining your stamina and in like a dark souls you almost never want to sprint it's almost like pointless because much better sprint for traversal not for battles yeah like you're never going to sprint away from something you'd rather dodge roll and get like the invincibility frames or something in sekiro it's like no like if i'm just running around this arena around like edges of it her projectiles are never going to hit me and i could just run forever like she's like and that was a huge moment for me it's also like you know that was a big one strip part before my strategy for kinsei as well is like sometimes you just or ishin sometimes you have to just like run away and just run until you're in like try to dodge things and let your brain work and kind of comprehend what's going on and see the patterns before you just go in there and get slaughtered and that was like once i clicked there i was like oh this phase is not actually that much hard it's almost the same it just has this one act like two or extra attacks or something and they're very easily dodged. I just was so flustered by it. I didn't. It didn't even occur to me to just run around. And then eventually, I was like, "Oh wait, I can just run infinitely, and it's fine." Yep. And and running infinitely became a huge strategy for me in the second part of the game. And it, like, this is also something I want to get into. Like Sekiro tells a much more forward-facing story than Dark Souls. Mm-hmm. But it is also very good at all the things Dark Souls does of, like, embedding the story in the world and in character designs and stuff like that. Like, one of my favorite realizations of that is when you fight um, your, your Al, your father, on top of... It's where you fight Genichiro. Yeah. Um, and that's, like, maybe the end of, like... If you split the game to, like, three acts, that would be, like, the end of Act 2. Because that's also yep. where the game branches. Um, I haven't done the fights with, like, Emma and Ishin, but they show up there, right? If you, if yes. you decide with... Okay. So you're fighting Al, and your father is this, like, he's this big old, you know, grandpa shinobi, right? And I realized, because I, I had to look up uh, some, some guides online for this, because um, like Dark Souls and, every, and Bloodborne and everything else, the online community is very helpful for Sekiro, which is great. There's yeah. no shame in looking up a video for this, because uh, you yeah. need, sometimes you need some help. Owl but, is very hard. That is a hard boss fight. And and what I ultimately came up with with the help of the internet is like, Owl is slow. He is an old shinobi who is big and has lost his speed, and he can't move very fast. And all his atta- his attacks are heavy. He will probably kill you in one hit if he gets a hit off, but he can't move much. You can move a lot. Sekiro is really fast. He has no stamina bar. Run to your heart's content. And what you can do, and the way I did this is just I equipped my fastest attack, which is Whirlwind Slash. And just ran around that stage and and kept it enough of a distance that he was 
always going to be doing his attack where he kind of tries to jump in and stab you. And his stab is so slow that once he does it, if you're running and you dodge it, you move in, you whirlwind slash, and you get a little chunk of his health down, and you can just keep doing that. And it's kind of... Like, I saw some people say that's like a cheese strategy. I don't think that's a cheese strategy. That feels kind of like part of this, like the story of the game at that point. It's like this, the key to that fight is you are fast and he is slow. And that's a huge part of it. It's like your attacks don't do a lot of damage. His do, but you have speed and ultimately that, that wins here. And it's that kind of thing like where a lot of the boss fights are good at imparting story and character through things like that, you know? Yeah, and one of the other things that's great about that owl boss fight is um, he he also just has this like whole bag of shinobi tricks that he throws at you. Some of which are the same tricks you have. So he has like yep. gunpowder that he explodes. He's got like a poison thing that makes it so you can't heal, which is a motherfucker if you get hit by that. Um, that's yes. that's one of those where like it's a really heavily telegraphed, and you get hit by it once, and you're like, I'm never gonna get hit by this attack again because it is just utter death. Um, and he you know, so he has just like a lot of tricky little like things that he can pull out of his bag and that's one of the fun things about that fight for me um is that like my narrative my internal narrative that fight because i didn't use that run around strategy i mean i did that a little bit but i didn't like that wasn't my main strategy for him um was like it felt like a this old man is kind of like desperate and has to use all these kind of more underhanded techniques and i just mostly beat him with more skillful swordplay like i didn't even really use prosthetics that much on him and it was just like no, motherfucker, like, I'm just going to take you down. Like, you, like I don't care your big sword swings, I can parry them. Like, you're going to throw a fucking, um, you know, dust in my face and try to blow it up. I'll just dodge around behind you and hit you in the ass. Like, it's, it's because especially one of the best things about the combat in this game is that the more extravagant, flashy move the boss uses, the better. Because if you know how to counter it, they're fucked. Um, and that's, that's yep. to me the best element of the combat of the game is that the better you get at the bosses, the more everything the boss does just hurts them further. Because it's like if it's a big crazy attack, like if it hits you, it'll probably kill you. But if you know how to counter it, if you have the fucking Makiti counter and you know and you have that timing down, like shit, that's like half your goddamn posture bar right there. Um, and so that feeling of pure mastery over your opponent um like the owl boss fight is one that in my mind sticks out really well for that because that was just like how i approached that fight and it took me a long time because he was hard but it's like once i got to the end of it it was like you're nothing old man you've got nothing on me like i've like the student has surpassed the master because every single thing you throw at me is just something that is like digging you deeper into the grave basically i mean shit like that's so true i'm thinking of like with ishin at the end you know, early in the game, there's nothing scarier than a big old thrust attack from a giant spear. Because uh, even if you have the Makiri counter, you might not be that good at it yet, you know? But mm -hmm. by the time you get to Ishin at the end of that game, I was begging Ishin. I'm like, yeah, thrust at me, you motherfucker, because I'm going to stomp on that spear and I'm going to stab you in the face and I'm going to take down half your posture and I will feel so good. Like, those were my favorite moments in the Ishin fight because I had the Makiri counter and I knew how to fucking use it 40 hours into the game and I could just kick his ass with that. Those moments are amazing. Yeah, and, and yeah, so that, like, that big red kanji that pops over their head when they use an unblockable attack... At the early in the those game, those are opportunities. Like, yeah, early in the game, you're like you start you shit your pants, particularly in like those early spear guys before you kind of figure out the Maki counter stuff. And yeah, then by the end of the game, you're like, yes, yes, use your let me jump on your head or fucking stomp on your spear or whatever it is. Um, one of the best things with Maki counter, also just thinking about the owl boss fight, um, is I don't know if you ever did this, 
But if you do the thrust attack where you hold down R1 and you do that like big thrust, he can do the Makiti counter to you, which is fucked up. Like it's it's yeah. one of the most fucked up moments in a video game this year <laughs> is we tried to thrust at him and him stepping on my sword. I'm like, oh shit, oh shit, right, you're a ninja too. This is part of your tool set. I was like, I did not think that through, and that is very cool that he gets that move. I like it in any game. This is like this is I think this is one of the reasons why I love Sekiro so much. My favorite boss fights in games are duels. My favorite types of fights in like big fights like this in games are when both combatants are relatively evenly matched and they have the same kinds of tool sets. So particularly for that owl fight, because he has Shuriken and he has like firecrackers and he has the Makiti counter, it like it feels like it's this true duel between equals. Um and it's a thing that Dark Souls has great boss fights, but it very rarely gives you that because most of the boss fights in the Dark Souls game are against giant monsters. It's one of the reasons why the Arturius fight from the DLC is like the for me the golden standard of Dark Souls fights is because it has that quality of here's just like two for me I was using a sword so it's like two swordsmen enter an arena armored to the teeth um and they just go at each other and the best man wins and it's not me trying to fight a like three story tall dragon um and that's like the feeling that Sekiro gave me each time is like walk into this fucking arena it's you and me old man we've got our swords we've got some shinobi shit let's just go. Um, and when you win, it's so satisfying because it feels like you won against like a real opponent, not you like put some monster down. And Sekiro has a couple of those fights, which are great. But I think those the monster type fights are great because there's only a few of them instead of the reverse, which is what Dark Souls is. Yeah, absolutely. It's because I and I, I wouldn't change a thing about the balance in Dark Souls because yeah. I Dark Souls wouldn't be Dark Souls without you know chopping away at a monster's feet as it's like way over you and you're like under its butt hoping it doesn't see you like that's part yeah. of the fun of Dark Souls. But like Sekiro, if Sekiro did something just like that, it wouldn't feel true to Sekiro. Um, like the way it approaches the more Dark Soulsy fights are actually really fascinating to me because. Probably the most Dark Soulsy boss in the game is the the ape. I feel like because um, he totally looks like something you'd fight in Dark Souls, but you don't approach that in any way like you would approach a Dark Souls fight. Like if you're oh, yeah. trying to fight the big ape by like hacking away at its heels, it'll just sma- it'll just literally pick you up and drag you across the ground and then throw you into a wall. And it's a fucking great animation that you will laugh at the first time and then be like motherfucker the fifth time until you realize okay, let's not do that. Um, we want to bait it into attacks where we can just go toe-to-toe with it and do some counters and stab this motherfucker, you know? Um, yeah. It's great. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, Ishin is the best embodiment of all of that, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, yeah. Let's talk about some of the areas, because, I mean, is there any more to say about the outskirts and the castle? I, I love, especially when you get to the proper Ashina Castle area, the, like, lead up to Ashina Castle is one of the best, like, gauntlets they throw at you because there's mm-hmm. so many enemies. There's a big mini-boss on the stairs. Um, if you go around the sides, there's all sorts of enemies. And when you go up on the roofs, you start getting the guys who, like, jump around a bunch. And that leads to one of my favorite moments in the whole game is it's, like, getting up to the roof of Ashina Castle is a hurdle. Like, it'll probably take you a couple of tries to, like, figure out the whole area so you're good enough to get up there. And then you get up there and you kill the two like little ninja guys who are running around. You're like, oh, okay. And then you start walking and then you hear, ha! And you're like, what's this? And you look up and there's a dude just flying at you and he just shoves you into a wall and kills you and it's dead. And I remember the first time that happened, I was like, what? What the fuck? 
what the fuck? And then I go up there the second time and he's hanging out on a big kite. Yes. And you realize, that's such a great moment. Yeah, that's an all-timer. There's just a couple of those moments in Sekido where it's just like, <laughs> you motherfuckers, it's so good. The fact that he's just physically there, that like you could see that he's up there beforehand. Um, like The chances of you trying to pay attention to that are very slim. But it's that information is presented to you. Yeah, and just the scream as he comes like coming in. <laughs> It's so good, but then once you get killed by that once, like every time you're like, you fucking idiot, like I know you're yeah. coming. There's no, you will never die to that guy a second time because you know no. he's coming and he just blows himself up. Um, but it's, yeah, that that moment at the top of Ashina Castle is definitely a, a standout one, particularly just most of the big moments of this game involve like bosses or mini bosses, and that's a good, just like, here's just this one normal enemy that like really knows how to stand out of the pack. Like that guy yep. is just like he he wants to be a star and he is a star for that one shining moment. They might as well have just included audio there of Miyazaki cackling like behind <laughs> the scenes because you can basically hear it. You can cuz it's so perfectly tailored of like you go through all the different roofs as they go up and then you get onto the main Ashina Castle roof. You kill you have to fight two guys at once which is very hard in Sekiro. Like it's hard in Dark Souls, it's even harder in Sekiro to like fight multiple people at once and like you get through them like okay like you you just imagine that you're like covered in blood you know and you're like okay well here i've got a clear shot to walk across this roof yeah boom you know it's it's yeah. so mwah. but yes yeah, so you've got all that um and then you get the interior of the castle and everything all the way up to genichiro so much good stuff um i i feel like and i also like it's it's one of those areas like in dark souls that is so well designed i feel like i could navigate it with my eyes shut at a certain point you know because it's so vivid in my mind yeah, that's where you also fight one of my favorite mini-bosses, which is the Yaido guy, the guy who does, like, the quick-draw attack that, like, will kill you, basically. Oh, right. Hit. But he, there's, like, that. it gives that little, like, glint of light before he draws an attack. So, like, it's it's a great, like, he's a great, like, glass cannon kind of enemy that if he hits you, you're almost dead. But if you parry him, you will stun him almost in one, one go. Um, yep. I think that's, like, a very fun, that mini-boss stands out to me really well. That's that's actually a great point because when I first played the game, that guy pissed me off as much as anything else. Like he really, I was just it was proof that I didn't understand the parry thing because I just wasn't getting it. Some I don't even remember how I beat him the first time to get through to Genichiro, but the second time I played the game, Sean, I went in there, I beat him in like thirty seconds, yeah. like just immediately because at that point I knew how to do the parry stuff, like. And and it is it's much less precise than you think it is at first because you know I think a lot of Sekiro is just hammering down on L one in yes. like in a rhythm but like you just hammering on it and if you do it right against him he's fucking toast there's he cannot touch you if you are hammering in the right rhythm you know yes yeah so I think he that mini boss is well placed because it is a like hint that's like here's an enemy that is almost impossible to beat without parrying like the enemy is yes. just designed. Um, I mean, most enemies in the game are designed that it's like parrying is the best strategy for them, but a lot of them you could kill just by doing raw damage and not really having to bother with that stuff. It's just a lot harder. Um, that dude, that's like almost impossible because he just does so much damage. But if you have your parry down, he's like the easiest enemy in the fucking game. Because he ba like, that's a good example of what I'm saying of like the big flashy attacks just hurt the enemies. That guy is as much a fucking suicide bomber as the dude on the kite, right? Yes. Like you, the, what you're doing is just getting yourself fucking killed because I'm not an idiot and I know what I'm doing and you're just dead immediately. This is a suicide attack you're giving me. Yep. So after Genichiro, there's lots of different places to go. 
Um, you kind of go beyond Ashina Castle and you get the... Oh, there's so many places. You get the whole Sunken Valley, which is cool. You get um, Senpoji, which is one of my favorite places in the whole game. You can go to the Ashina Depths eventually and Mibu Village and all of that. Um, and eventually the Celestial Palace and, and Fountainhead Palace. So these are all different areas in the game. Um, any that strike you like we should talk... Actually, you know what? I know what I want to do. Because okay. the, sunken, the Sunken Valley you get a little preview of in the first half of the game. Which is that on your way to the Ashina Outskirts, you meet the Giant Snake. And the giant, the giant snake is one of the coolest things in this game. And if you are someone like me, who has a phobia of snakes, like an actual, like, 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 like thinking about snakes freaks me out. It's, it's not good for me. There is, I've never played a sequence in a video game more horrifying than the first time you meet the giant snake and he comes out and is just this massive, just like literally... He's the length and, and like girth of a fucking canyon. And you are having to like crawl along walls and jump into the grass and hide. And he's like, you know, he's over there with his eye that's as big as you. And, and, and finally in that sequence, you get in the little like caravan and you stab him in the eye. And that feels very good. But that whole sequence up to the point where you stab him in the eye is fucking freaky as shit. Yeah, it's so good. It's such a, because up till that point... There's been almost nothing supernatural at all. And no. So then you just have, here's this fucking, like, god snake just working its way through the canyon. And the, like, animation work and texture on that snake is so good. It's by far the best, like, the best-looking video game snake I've ever seen. Partly because he's so big, you get to see all the detail on it. Yes. But it's just, like, the way it slithers through that fucking canyon, it's, like... As as a as someone who is a big fan of giant monsters, that is a really really well executed giant monster. Like it 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 gives if someone who like I have no problem really with snakes. I don't have a snake phobia or like I'm not even really have a problem with touching them. But like that gave me like chills when that thing came around because it just felt like oh I am tiny. I am nothing to this giant monster. And then eventually, if you want to get the what I think is like the truest ending of the game, you got to kill those fucking things, and that's great. Yep. That's they fucking and it just starts shooting blood all over the place and you're like, well, I wanted to talk about oh that because the, the sunken valley is where you meet him again because that's basically where he lives. Yeah. Um. And and you don't realize it at first, but you can see him in a couple different places, and eventually you learn there are actually two of him. There are yes. two giant snakes. Um. He's he's a he's an imposter. He's he's got a prince and a pauper situation going on here. Um. And and. Like, because there's the first one where he comes back and there's another, like, it's the closest FromSoft has ever gotten to Uncharted is the second snake sequence where you're, like, running from him and you wind up, like, falling into the water and you're trying to swim away and all that. Um, so there's that sequence, which is great. But yes, Sean, I remember, because during the whole Sunken Valley part, I became very curious about the part where you go underground and you find the snake in front of the temple. And I figured out when you get the ninja ability where you can make the monkey go, like, distract the snake. Yes. That poor fucking little monkey. Because um, you can go get one of the hearts there. And then you find the spot where you the snake is like sleeping unawares. And it's all big coiled up. And you just jump. And the big red icon appears. And you hit R1. And you get literally bathed in blood. Like literally Sekiro's character model is so covered in blood. That it doesn't go away until you save the game. Like until you go to a, um, an idol. 
and yeah. it's it's fucking crazy. And and Sean, because of my fear of snakes and my love of the entire snake boss, like the the two snake bosses and all that, that's the reason I I felt compelled to go for the return ending, which is the one where you use the snake hearts. Um, so that's the one I ultimately did was the return ending, which felt true to me. But I was going to ask you which one you felt like was because I haven't seen all the endings. Um, but yeah, that one felt like very fitting for me. But maybe it was because I just felt like I have to make these snake hearts mean something. <laughs> yeah, because I almost felt bad when I killed the, the second the snake. It's just like, I did just, too. Just chilling out here, giant god snake. This is probably fucked up that I'm doing this because you're clearly some sort of divine creature in this world. And yes. I'm, you know, killing you for your like weird brain juice or whatever the fuck it was that I needed from you. Um, but yeah, I think the return ending is definitely the like... I the most elaborate ending in these games is usually the one that is like the ending ending Bloodborne like the way that Sekiro's endings are set up is very similar to Bloodborne and Bloodborne's true Bloodborne's quote unquote true ending is much more obvious because you actually get like additional like video game content um here it's more like this cutscene is more elaborate the other major one you can do um that involves you fighting the like past version of Owl is basically like a slightly better version of the standard ending to the game. So I think the return one is like the ending ending. That also feels like it sets up a sequel if they want to make it. Yeah, because the return ending is the one where you've met this girl in like the sort of Fountainhead Palace area, I think. Or no, it's earlier than that. That's the temple. Yeah, the Simpachi Temple is where she is. Okay. Yeah, so... And and her whole thing is really cool, and that's where you do the boss fight with like the four monkeys in the illusion area, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. which is really unique. I've never seen anything quite like that. Um, and I really like that character and the whole idea of because the whole second half or last two thirds of this game, the like the the mood changes. Like the first half is you're trying to rescue Kudo, but most of the game after that is figuring out what to do with this power of immortality, right? Yeah, and and you have you're you're basically it's a it's a big long fetch quest, but it's a big long fetch quest with like very big moral implications, you know? Um, and so my understanding is the standard ending is you kill Kuro to sever the immortality, right? Yes, you use the mortal blade to kill him. Yeah. And then there is the ending where you fight Owl Father again and you can save his life. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so in the Owl Father one, you like Sekudo sacrifices his life so Kuro okay. can live. Um, and that like that's a good cutscene to go watch um, if you're not committed to playing the game through all the way again because it's a cool um, last cutscene with Kudo and and it's it's a re- yeah. that's a really well done ending. Nice. And then there is there's obviously the bad ending, the Shura ending, where you just betray everyone. Yes. Um, how does that one even go? Do you fight Ishin the Sword Saint at the end of Shura? Yes. So that one you um, when you go up, it's it's when you meet um, Owl and Owl gives you the choice to betray Kudo. Um, if you accept that choice and say, yes, I will obey you and I will fight Kudo or I will kill him, um, then you fight Emma, which is fucked up, and then you fight Ishin, but it's like a di- it's a different Ishin boss fight, which is cool. And, and then once you do that, then you get the Shura ending where you, I'm pretty sure you then kill Owl and you're just like a fucking bloodlust monster, basically, who presumably is going to bring the world to uh, ruin. So that's the most different ending and it would cut off like a third of the game. Yes, yeah. That that's okay. that's the like bonus ending is kind of what it feels like. It's clear okay. like anyone who on their first playthrough would say, "Yes, I will definitely betray Kudo. You're a bastard. You deserve not to, to play the whole last third of the game." Yes, indeed, cuz I love the whole relationship between um, you know, Wolf and Kuro, uh, yeah. Shinobio. And and 
So yes, yeah, so so the return ending is the one where you are returning the the dragon's blood to source, which feels like the truest kind of thing to do, especially if you've read enough like Japanese folklore. It feels like that's what you're supposed to do, and and Kuro's like spirit goes on to live in the Lady of the Temple, and you and her go off on basically a journey to the West, right? Yeah, you're going to China, right? Yeah, right. Which is just it's a great evocative ending. It feels like the truest thing of like Kuro both dies and lives on. Um, Mm. And I love like, there's this whole thing where like Kuro is a child, but he does have this like divine nobility to him. So like him dying in that way feels very true. It's just, I was very satisfied with that ending and going in, like I had not spoiled myself. So I didn't know like which ending was considered truest, but I was like, I bet that one is considered truest. But um, so I'm glad to go through them with you here. Yes. Um, yeah, so so we were talking about the Sunken Valley. What other areas? Uh, we already talked about Senpoji a bit. Senpoji is fucking amazing. Yeah, um, I just love the whole tone of Senpoji and like the corrupted monks. I mean, not the corrupted monk that's in a different area. <laughs> yes, but but the, all the the monks of the temple that are basically like undead. There's some of the I think my favorite enemies to fight because I just like killing those motherfuckers. Um, and that's the area where you get the mortal blade. That is one of the coolest things in the whole game where now you can kill enemies that are immortal and so you have all those like fucked up ones that have the giant centipede monsters um because the the whole premise of the game that i think is so cool is it is just um you're seeing the consequences of people chasing after immortality um which like the best version of immortality is the divine dragon blood that kudo has but even that's bad like, it's not a good... There's no such thing as good immortality. That's, like, the cleanest version of it, though. But then you have, you know, this, like, the whole thing of the temple where they basically created their own divine child um, that is kind of like Kudo, but, like, isn't, you know, it's kind of like they sort of manufactured her in some way um, and then are using her to try to chase some sort of immortality, but it's so twisted and, and grotesque and they're you know, implanted with these weird, like, centipede creatures that you then rip out of their fucking heads and cut in half of the mortal blade, um, and they get vanquished. It's such a cool... Just, like, the tone of that and the concept of it is so interesting, um, and it's one of the reasons why I think Sekiro, for me, easily has my favorite story of any of these games, because I think it straddles that line really well between a lot of that stuff is not explicitly stated it's just very evocative and is clear through the environment in the areas you're moving through but there is enough like direct character interaction with Sekiro the divine child Kudo Emma on the sculptor Ishin all those characters have like conversations with each other which is one of the only things in Dark Souls 2 that I really like that the other Dark Souls games don't do is Dark Souls 2 has a lot more of that stuff as well. I think Sekiro is like the best blend of those elements for me personally as someone who's not going to watch like a four-hour lore video um, to like get everything I can out of the Dark Souls story. Sekiro is like, this is my lane for these kinds of games and I think it's so well pulled off. And um, the Sinpoji Temple I think is the best area in terms of that stuff. Well, I definitely agree that it pulls it off really extraordinarily well because, like I said before, it doesn't sacrifice any of what From Software is so good at in doing that. Like, it still has this world that is incredibly rich and doesn't spell things out for you and tells you story through environment. It just also has a pretty well-produced story layered on top of that. So it feels like the best of both worlds in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, if I have any one criticism of the game, and I have very few because I think this is as fucking close to a perfect game as I've ever seen, um, 
you have a lot of conversations like with Kuro or Emma or things like that that are like important to the story and the way they're done is just the two character models standing there Mm -hmm. and the dialogue goes on I wish they had done something like um, like I don't need fully produced cutscenes because one I don't think they're necessary and two I understand you know they've got to put the money somewhere Um, but I wish they had almost done something like in Persona like have like an anime portrait up or something just to like do it more like almost visual novel style for those moments just to make it because otherwise you're just kind of sitting and reading the bottom of the screen and there's really nothing on screen to look at in those moments. Um, I feel like they could have tightened that up somehow. Um, but that's like my only criticism of the presentation. Yeah, I kind of agree. It just it just sort of feels like a holdover of how that stuff is always done. It would be nice if like maybe even just like the camera zooms in a little more, stuff like that. So you could just like see some like the facial expressions and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 But ultimately a small problem. Um, Yes, I agree with everything you said about Senpoji. Like this is something the game, like I said earlier, where like you have these like spokes and these branching paths and you get some really cool like feelings of like mastering an area. Senpoji is really good at that because you go through and there's all these undead enemies. You're like, well, what do I do with these guys? You get the mortal blade. Then you go back and you get this sense of excitement at like, I know how to like get through these guys and unlock this area now. And it's really great moments with that. Um, the Ashina depths are fucking crazy. That's where the game goes like full horror, where you have all the like ghosts down there, right? Mm, um, yeah. And you have to you have to, to kill the. I felt very bad. The dude was just standing there like whistling, like the the weird octopus dude. Well, I mean, he was he had like corrupted that entire village and was okay. like creating this ghostly illusion. Like as soon as that's true, yeah. So that's one of those things that I think is fun about the like implication there. Um, it, it's been a while since I played the game, so my memory is a little bit rusty. But because so, like the the um, Fountainhead Palace or the Minamoto Estate, um, which is the sort of like more sp- like spiritual place you visit in the clouds that you're taken there by a giant man in a straw, because this game gets fucking nuts <laughs> near yep. the end. Uh, so good. Um, you encounter a lot of those weird sort of like like weird octopusy looking priest kind of guys. They're wearing like. I think it's like Heian period, um, like old Imperial Japan kind of get up. Um, um, there's like a lot of stuff because the game itself is set sometimes during the Warring States period. So they're like from like a couple hundred years previous to that based on their fashion, um, if I remember my Japanese history correctly. So the implication is that at some point one of them either came back down or you have – there's one of the – side quest in the game is you have one of those guys locked up in there that wants like the divine dragon water that is in the Fountainhead Palace and if you give it to him and you go back later that guy turns into one of them so presumably at some point either one of those mm. things got there or as part of the ritual they're doing because that's the where you get access to going up to the Fountainhead Palace as part of like one of their like marriage ritual or whatever the fuck it was someone drank that divine dragon water became this sort of corrupted in blood, they look like the corrupted scholars in Bloodborne. So he's not a corrupted scholar, but he's like a corrupted royal, basically. Um, and 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 then he used his like powers to take control of this whole village and turn it into this like ghost, literal ghost town, um, which is one of the more evocative areas. Because then once you kill him, the fog lifts and all the spectral enemies disappear, and you can just traverse that area normally, which is very cool. Yeah, it becomes like a new area that you've already gone over, which this game does very well in a couple ways. Yeah. So yeah, that that part's really cool. Um, and then yes, Fountainhead Palace, and that's where you get the. So you have Corrupted Monk Part One in Mibu Village, 
who is he's a one health bar boss and he's tough but but pretty manageable yeah. and then corrupted monk part two is a bitch <laughs> and that one took me a while you've that's one where like you have to be good at parrying but his attacks are also really heavy so then your um stamina but not your stamina bar your posture bar like also becomes a consideration which in some boss fights you don't ever have to worry about um so like i i kind of love that you have the two levels of that and then the entire fountainhead palace area this like beautiful celestial palace you go to is so cool and like you can also just rack up some fucking high experience there because there's some really tough like the normal enemies in fountainhead palace are incredibly tough and there's the squid guys who can hit you with that attack that enfeebles you oh yeah you're just fucked if you get enfeebled man i loved that whole stretch of the game yeah, it's it's that's probably my favorite like single area. It's so gorgeous and just the sense of like just like cruel decadence there of that is like these people living that they're they are like immortal as well and they're just like living above everybody else in this like divine palace guarded by the dragon um Shinron basically from who came from China. Um and so you're fighting your way through there. Um, it's particularly there's that great moment where you, you meet some like normal people up there that are basically like servants. And there's that one girl um, who's like talking about her father who went to go serve at the estate and never came back. Um, and then eventually she gets in there and you open up that one door where it's revealed that like they're basically eating these people. If I remember correctly, that's like the door opens and yeah. there's just like all of these the squid monsters with like just all these dead people and she just fucking kills them. Um, and stabs them to death. It's like a really great little character beat, basically. That is, again, one of the things that, like, Sekido makes that stuff a little bit more explicit and sort of directs you there more so than a Dark Souls does. And it works really well because it just sells the whole sense of this area of the sort of lordship um, and the royalty, like the imperial royalty of Japan like being lost and corrupted in their decadence in, in ruling over everything from afar and in like historically, you know, allowing the whole country to fall to warfare and ruin as all the individual daimyo fought each other over control of Japan, which is what the Warring States period was. Um, so there's like, I think there's like interesting commentary rooted in there and in the sort of servant master relationship that wolf and kudo has there's like good tension there as well um and yeah like all that stuff is just so phenomenally well done yes and then you do get the divine dragon boss fight there as you say you get to fight shenron and uh that one's crazy i i think there's there's a little more finickiness to that one than i than i would like like some of near the end where you're it's very cool where you jump up and like redirect the lightning and send it at him and i also think that's really important because you have to get pretty good at the lightning throws, I think, for Ishin, and the game yeah. starts doing more of the lightning throws for you. And so by the time I got to Ishin, I was very good at that, and that's ultimately what let me beat Ishin is I beat him with the lightning. Um, I, again, I think that one, because it's like a big, more Dark Souls-y kind of thing, it gets a little finicky here and there, but it is so overwhelmingly cool you don't care that much. Yeah, it's it's a gimmick boss fight. Like Each one of these games usually has at least one that's like a gimmick boss fight that it's like not really like a fight fight because i mean it's a giant fucking dragon i mean you don't kill it at the end you just take a piece of it um like the dragon yeah it's gotta be fucking fine it's a giant dragon god 
Um, but it is definitely a boss fight for the spectacle, and it's some good fucking spectacle. Like, it is cool, like, leaping up and grappling hooking between all the different trees and then shooting the lightning back at that fucking dragon motherfucker. It's very good. Yes, absolutely. And then, you know, between all of these areas, you have Ashina Castle has a couple different phases. And the end one, like, where everything's on fire and shit, there's, that one's really tough, like, in terms of traversal, because the enemies that they populate it with are really hard. It's also good for grinding if you want to get a couple extra skills, which I definitely did before Ishin, um, because you can rack up experience pretty fast at that point, um, and there's some cool stuff to do. But, man, uh, so much good stuff. And then, I guess, should we talk about Ishin, the Sword Saint? Um, very quickly, we, we didn't really talk about the Guardian Ape. We kind of talked around him a little bit. Just, I just want to, like, that fight is so fucking rad. Um, and, <laughs> and one of the all-time great moments of video games of, like, the past few years, at the very least, um, is you defeating the Guardian Ape the first time. It's, like, the whole fight, it's got this big, fucked-up giant sword um, that, if you, like, go into the lore, that is um, the sculptor when he was a shinobi. He was, like, orangutan or whatever. He fought the guardian ape, and that's his sword that was left embedded in its neck. Um, and so you then take the sword once you've weakened him enough, and you cut his fucking head off. And it says, like, enemy vanquished or whatever the fuck it says. Shinobi execution. Yeah, shinobi execution. Um, and then it just stands up again, headless. Um, and picks up the sword, right? And then it just starts fucking attacking. It's got its sword in one hand and its head in the other. Yes, that's, that's right. That's what it does. Yeah. And and then it's like the animation work is so good because it's because it's controlled by one of the like weird centipede things from the Senpoji Temple. And its whole movement is kind of like this big worm centipede thing where it's like just like sort of diving around and lifting itself up like just very unnaturally like it almost looks like it's being pulled by strings and it just extends itself out in like grotesque ways and it's just one of the coolest fucking boss fights um like the mechanics are really fun um because i think it's a it's so interesting most of the boss fights in the game that have multiple phases the second phase is basically the first phase with a couple of other additional moves on top of it um the guardian ape is a good example of one where the second phase is just a completely different boss fight that is like the strategies are almost like completely different between the two of them because the behaviors of the living guardian ape and the undead one are so opposite of one another um so like that dynamic is really fun it's also just like aesthetically one of the coolest boss fights in any of these games it's i just love it to death it's so good. It's so hard. I compared it to, it feels like if if Genichiro is the Bell Gargoyles, I would say that the Guardian Ape is like Ornstein and Smog, which is where it's like, here's a real big crazy challenge. Now prove that you've got what it takes. Like, like you've proven you know how to play it, but now we're going to really put the fucking screws to you. That's what that one felt like to me. Because I definitely, I think of any boss between Genichiro and Ishin, I had the most trouble with the Guardian Ape. Because he also like... You have to do, I mean, you can beat it other ways, I'm sure. But, like, you really have to get pretty good at his parries for his second phase. And they're hard because they're they're not nearly as rhythmic. Or they're rhythmic but in a very different way. They're much more like, like um, not staccato, what's the word? They're syncopated. Like, they're yeah. offbeat. And so, like, you have to get into this weird rhythm where, like, his big swing is, is where he does, he, like, slithers on the ground, hits you once, he goes up, hits you twice, and then he goes up even higher and d- comes down and does a third, and you parry that, and then you put your loaded spear in and pull the centipede out and whack it, you know? Yeah. And so that's what you do. But to get that timing down, you have to kind of get in enough that, that you're, this is not a hammer L1 
situation. This is a really carefully read it. And if you read it enough, you feel like it does feel sort of like music where you feel like this hit, then this hit, then this hit. And I remember, Sean, when I when I got it, when I beat him was the moment where it was another one of those Matrix moments where like I saw the code and everything slowed down. It felt like the sound of the game just kind of went out and he kind of slowed down. It felt like I was looking at him in slow motion. And it was like hit, block, hit, block, hit, block, spear. And I just had it down. And it was like wild. And I remember I, I told you because I think we podcasted shortly after that. And off the air I was saying, Sean, I, I had my Shinobi moment <laughs> with the Guardian Ape. Because you had described this on the podcast um, a few months ago where Sekiro kind of makes you feel like a samurai or like a ninja in that you just kind of get in the flow of the moment like fucking Goku go and Ultra Instinct, you know? Yes, it is. that is 100% what it feels like. And it is, I think, yeah, because this was a conversation we had off the air and the, the metaphor I used because we've been using musical metaphors repeatedly because the game is like, like it, some people have like basically said it's like, I mean, the combat in Sekiro is basically a rhythm game at some point, um, which is um, a good like way to think about it if you're having trouble with it because it is very much about that rhythmic pace. And particularly with some of Genitro's moves, that was a big moment I had of realizing, oh, that like one attack he has where, and this is of good detail, where the swordswomen in the Minamoto estate or in the Fountainhead Palace have the same exact move, which is a good connection of that. So Genichiro has that, like, he hits you a couple times and he kind of winds up and then he goes like, ting, 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 ting. And that rhythm... Like, once I started feeling out that rhythm, I'm like, oh, like, this, there's a musical quality to this. I'm feeling the rhythm and, like, the beat of his attack, which is very particular, um, which presumes he learned that move from Tomoe, Tomoe, who came from the Fountainhead Palace, Connections, fucking yarn on a, on a, on a board. If they ever do DLC for Sekiro, I want, it, I want to meet Tomoe and see what she was like, because that character seems, there's, like, you hear lots of stuff about her around the edges of this game. She seemed like she was cool. Um, yes, but it was like the metaphor for what that feels like to me in Sekiro, in terms of like the music stuff. Is it feels like when you're playing music and you fall behind time and you're like trying to catch up and you're making mistakes and you're like rushing and you just can't get back on beat. Um, that's what it feels like when you're losing Sekiro. When you're doing really well at Sekiro, that's when everything feels like it slows down. You're hitting everything exactly on beat, and it's like when you're playing a song completely second nature don't even have to think about it every like and you know you have a fucking metronome playing and everything is exactly on beat every single time and you're not even worried about the time and maybe you're playing it like you know i play guitar so it's like sometimes it's like i am like technically playing this thing very fast because i've practiced it so much i've gotten good at playing it like really quickly but it feels like time has completely slowed down because i'm so practiced at this and i'm so focused on it that like what what is actually like you know a, a really fast guitar lick or something that I'm playing in three seconds? It feels like I'm playing it in like a minute or something, um, and that's what when you really get into the rhythm of Sekiro, that's what Sekiro feels like. The animations are like you realize that the attack animations are not actually that fast in this game most of the time. Sekiro's attack, like his basic sword swipe, is pretty slow. Usually, it feels like everything's playing super fast, and then you're in the the rhythm of it, and it's like no, he's just. That's a very, like, gentle sword swipe, basically, he's doing. It's not that fast. You can see everything that's happening. You just have to be in the headspace to see it. Yes, and that really resonated for me as someone who played 
from fifth grade to 12th grade in the orchestra in school, I played the viola in our orchestra. I wasn't very good, but you definitely get that feeling of like when the group gets good at a piece of music and you're in the zone with them, there's a very particular feeling. And I would say Sekiro is one of the only games outside of a literal rhythm game that gives me that feeling, you know? It's like a very, very different version of Arkham, you know, um, and that Arkham mm-hmm. is very rhythmic and, and Arkham is rhythmic in a, in a beat em up sort of sense. It's like rhythmic streets of rage. Um, this is this is like rhythmic Ninja Gaiden or something, you know. Um, all right. So, yeah, the Guardian Ape is amazing. I also want to shout out the entire lead up to the Guardian Apes where you start finding all the monkeys. Yes. And you slaughter so many monkeys, I feel so bad, and then you find the spot where there's just like 30 monkeys in a row, and like the frame rate of the game just fucking tanks as you slaughter those poor monkeys. Yeah, it's just like, you you just stumbled upon like monkey parliament, basically, and you just go Guy Fox on their asses and kill them all, and it's amazing. It's like, it's so, it feels so awful. Um, but yes, it, it is one of the things I respect the shit out of Miyazaki and from software is their just willingness to say, you know what, we'll just let the frame rate go to shit here because we want to have a just stupid number of monkeys on screen at the same time. It's fine if the frame rate's not super good because I'd rather have a lot of monkeys than have a sil- like silky smooth 30 frames or whatever. Yeah, and it's not like that's a, a like a, a hard pivotal boss fight where you need the frame rate to be good. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm fine no. with the frame rate dropped as I'm killing all the monkeys. <laughs> oh god, I feel so bad. All right, but should we talk about Ishin? Yes. So, so let me now give um, another one of my awards, Jonathan. Um, it's this is the Kinji Misumi, who's the the Zatoichi director. Kinji Misumi presents a best duel which goes to the moonlit battle in a field of reeds while a storm rages overhead with Ashina Daimyo, the Saint of Swords, Kensei Ishin. <laughs> I like that award. It's very good. Is the award, is the trophy for that one just a literal samurai blade that you have inscribed, like, on the blade? Yes, yes. It's And it's that whole title, but in kanji. Yes. It's, it's so hard. It's so brutally hard, but it is so good. It it's is, the best boss fight in any game for me so far. I, this it, this is maybe, the pinnacle yeah. of boss fights. Um, and, and You've it had is, more time to think on it, and I yeah. I would have to take some time, but like, it's definitely up there. Yeah, because again, I've so I've beat the game twice. So you know, incidentally, this this uh, along with Devil May Cry Five gets the the game so nice I beat it twice award. Um, and and yeah, I, the second time through like cemented my feelings about this being my favorite boss fight. Um, in any game I've played. Um. And one of the, like, just strokes of fucking genius. Like you said earlier about, like, you know, you, when the guy comes in with the suicide run, you can feel Miyazaki cackling. Um, that's, like, a mad cackle. I feel like this choice they made is a, like, classic Dark Souls-style Miyazaki cackle. Just like, <laughs> And just, like, a lot of, like, H-E-H's at the bottom of the screen as someone, like, does something, like, sinister. Is the first phase of the fight is you fighting fucking Genitro again. And every time you do the fight, it's not like you beat Genitro and then you never have to do it again. Every time you challenge Kensei Ishin, um, you have to kill Genichiro, and he's a fucking chump because you have been through so much shit that you come around to him and it's like, get the fuck out of the way, Genichiro. You ain't shit. Like, I don't care. Like, like you are a little punk and I'm going to kick your ass every single time because... The, the mommy and daddy are talking now. I'm going to fight Ishin 
Like, you are nothing. Um, and which is also where the story is at, is I think Genichiro understands that he is pathetic. And he's pathetic in the face of these things he's trying to deal with that he doesn't really understand. And it's like, you're just this, like, child having a fucking tantrum. Like, we're trying to deal with, like, serious issues. Um, and you just just dispose of that motherfucker. And it's not that they made him easier. They they have, like, the only thing they did is give him this, like, big wind-up attack at the opening of the fight with his, his, like, the Black Mortal Blade that gives you a good opening to do some damage early on. But he has all the exact same attacks. And I don't know if this is like it for you, Jonathan, but, like, my experience of the second time fighting Genichiro by the time you get there is, like, you are an utter chump. I have no problem dealing with you. Um, the only time I had trouble dealing with him was when I was tired and realized I needed to go to bed and, like, yeah. reapproach this fight fresh. It's, like, it's almost like a barometer that if, like, Genichiro gets, like, two hits on you, probably you want to walk away from the game for a while and come back because he is nothing and he should not be a challenge at all, really. Yeah, it, it took me a couple of tries to, like, get it down and figure out what he had, obviously. Um but once I figured out, because what I did is I basically just put on Ichimonji double. I would walk up to him as he got the mortal blade ready. I would thwack, thwack. And then I would do that any time he kind of left himself open. I would thwack, thwack. And then I would just wait for him to do his dun, 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 yeah. dun. And then, and then hopefully if my posture bar wasn't full, he would do a, a, a thrust. And then I would, you know, Makiri counter. At that point, he's probably done. Um, so, yes, I got very good at him very fast. And it was always a barometer for me was if I had a really successful run and I almost beat Ishin, I would then lose to Genichiro because <laughs> I would have be like so shaken and that would happen every time. So the only times after that I would lose to Genichiro was after I had almost beat the game, which was like humiliating and also told me like to get back in the game, you know? Yes, but it, it's such a, like normally I would d- do not like it when you have like that kind of extra phase in front of a boss or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, it means that every time you have to challenge it, you have to go through it again. But there's something so genius about putting the boss... It's like it's so perfectly tuned because everyone I've talked about or heard talk about this game has gotten stuck at Genitro. I got stuck at Genitro. You really got stuck at Genitro yes. for like half a year. Um, everyone gets stuck at Genitro because it's a hard boss fight at that point in the game with what you on um, the skills you've already built up. Um, and then so so the game knows the designers understood they were like the difficulty so finely tuned. Like everybody's going to get stuck at Genitro. But by the time they get to this point, it's like, honestly, as, as a, you know, professional teacher, it is, it is an astounding piece of what we call scaffolding of building up skills um, to this, like, you know, to use all the teacher's lingo, your summative assessment that, like, sort of is your test of how far you have come. Like, it is truly master class. And adding in that here's the, like, easy softball pitch before the summative assessment. Here's, like, the you know how to knock this out of the park because you have, we know you've built up all these skills. Like as it is, it is astounding to me that their their ability to do this, to have it so well calibrated for what must at the very least be the vast majority of the players of the game, without the, them being able to be reactive to it at all. You, there's no like they got feedback and adjusted the approach the way that an actual teacher would do this. They just designed it so well from the start, understanding the kinds of people that are playing the game. That these are the skills you've beat up, built up throughout the game. Genichiro is your huge formative assessment at the midpoint. And then once you get to the summative assessment at the end, that the material that you were struggling with earlier is nothing to you. And it's time for you to prove like what you can really do by tackling daddy. 
you know, there have been a lot of Sekiro podcasts out there, I'm sure, but have any had a professional public school teacher broken out the professional lingo on us? I don't think so. Yes. That's, that's what makes this podcast special. Exactly. No, I love it, Sean, because you're, you're so right. I mean, Ishin is a giant. He's the hardest final exam I've ever taken, yeah. you know? Because um, it, will, it will fucking test you. It is wild. Because um, he's so, so you have Genichiro and then three phases of Ishin. And I don't know about you. I actually wanted to ask, like, how long did it take you to beat Ishin, and kind of what was your process? Because I don't think anyone goes in and beats Ishin in one night. No, yeah, I mean, definitely, I did not beat him in one night. Like, it was a long, grueling process because I think it took me a couple of days of trying it. Um, it was definitely like the first couple times I did it, it was late at night because I was like trying to push to finish the game because I had all this momentum, and then I just realized I. It had been a long time since I had hit a brick wall in that game. Not probably since Genichiro. Like, there, I had struggled with other boss fights like the Guardian 8, but I had never felt like I was like, I just, right now, I cannot beat this boss. Like, it would have just been impossible. It wouldn't have mattered how many times I played it in that mindset. I just couldn't beat Ishin. Um, and so then I had to reapproach it the next day, give it a couple more solid tries. Um, and then I think the day after that is when I finally beat him, um, which is by far the most I've struggled over a fucking From Software boss since the Nameless King, which is the secret boss in Dark Souls 3, who that boss is very hard, but more because of some bullshit in that game with, like, camera angles and stuff like that. Um, whereas, like, Sekiro, it is a really fair, straightforward boss fight, really, with Ishin. There's there's no gimmicks. Um, the closest you get to a gimmick is the lightning thing, but even then, that, like, the lightning is the best example of what we were talking about earlier of, I want you to use a flashy attack, because when you use a flashy attack, you are done. Because I know earlier you said the lightning is what is how you beat Ishin. That is how I beat Ishin. That is like clearly how it's designed. Is like the third phase is I think the easiest phase of of Ishin because if you can get him yes. to use that lightning attack on you, um, because because this was like the most exultant moment of the whole game for me. Of like I just felt like high basically. I'm coming off of it was the first time I got to that third phase was when I beat it, um, which was a such a great oh feeling wow of yeah. like. Because because so the first phase is him using the sword, um, and then after you beat that, that's when that's when like he turns from like Sword Saint Ishin to the Ishin who like you know conquered the land of Ashina and established his own daimyo. This is the, he pulls out this massive fucking spear and a goddamn gun, and it's like this is the guy who like laid waste to battlefields. This is not honorable one on one duel. Ishin, you know, come up to the dojo and we'll like have a sparring match. This is the guy. It's like basically fighting fucking Guan Yu from Remnants of the Three Kingdoms. This is a guy who like won the entire like battlefields on his own. Um, now you're fighting that Ishin, um, and that form is so difficult. Like his attacks are so fast. He's got. I he must have the most different attacks of any yes. from software boss. It's ridiculous. He's got so many different moves. Um, some of them, are, the most of them are so devastating. He's got tremendous range because he has a gun and a fucking spear. Um, but then his third form is basically that form, but with lightning powers. So if you can beat the second form, the third you can form totally is, beat the third. Yeah, yes. the third form is easier. You just have to get that fucking lightning counter. And I almost died. I had almost no health. And he went up to do the lightning thing, and I jumped up in the air. He hit me, and I came down, hit him, stunned him. I came in, finished him off. It was like, yes, you motherfucker, you old motherfucker. I finally did it. I beat you. And it was just the most euphoric moment of games this year for me. Yeah. Of like any video game experience. 
Because I came really, really close to beating him the first time I got to the fourth phase. Like, when I got to the final phase, the first time I was, like, I had him down to almost nothing, and I just messed something up and died, and I'm like, fuck. And I I just, at that point, did just walk away, because I'm like, I'm not going to get there again tonight. I was too close, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And... And I think it was either the second or third time I got to the fourth phase. Like, you're not going to see the fourth phase a lot. Because if, if you get through the third phase, you'll be fine on that final phase. You can, if yeah. you've mastered that third phase, once you add in the lightning, if you can do the lightning jump, which is not that hard, it's hard the first time you see it. But, like, once you get that timing, it's, it's pretty, like, intuitive. And you can throw that lightning back at him. You can beat this shit. Like, the, the third phase, which I guess is Ishin's second phase, but the third overall of this fight, that is the hardest part. Because yeah. you go, you do Genichiro, then he comes out. Ishin's first phase is really interesting. Because again, talking about storytelling through boss fights. This is part of what I love about Ishin so much. Is that at first, so he's like in this robe. He's got just the sword. And he only does it in one hand. Like he's very, he's just testing you. You can just tell. Like the way he moves and everything is he's he's not going full strength. He's just sort of like kind of gently fighting you and seeing how good you are. He's like feeling you out. And if you can get through that, then he pulls out the stops and he gets the giant inhumanly large spear out and the gun. And then he starts going at you. And that feeling of like, oh shit, now I'm in an actual fight with Ishin, the motherfucking sword saint. And then he gets desperate and starts using the lightning. And that's the point where you're going to beat him is once he gets desperate and starts using the lightning. It's like he defeats himself as much as you defeat him. Um... And, and then the end of the game is he just sits down in the grass and waits for you to finish him because you have proven you're the better shinobi. It's so good. It's so fucking good. One other detail that I think is really great is that his whole moveset when he's using the sword is all the different Ashina sword-style techniques you can learn from him in his yes. like skill tree arc. So he uses Ichimonji. He has the Ashina cross, which is his like, Iaido attack. Um, so like it's very... It's one of the things that, like, you feel very prepared for him in many ways because a lot of the big moves he uses are moves you've seen because you can use them. Yes, and that's, like, that phase, what's key is recognizing those moves and knowing when he does them, when they're going to end, and when you can go in for an attack. Because he's pretty hard to beat, at least in my experience, from posture damage. Um, You have to at least get his vitality down a good chunk before posture will help you there. And so you have to be, like, I ran around a lot in that fight, and I'm waiting for him to, like, Ichimonji was the best one, but the cross and some of those others, you want to recognize those moves, have him do them, and then run in and just stab, I would use the mortal blade because it does a ton of damage, and, like, get his health down. Um, Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, I had... uh, The way I approached the different phases, like, phase one with Genichiro was a very direct, you know, thwack him on the head, and then posture damage a bunch. Phase two was I felt like I was running around a lot, trying to do vitality. It was not a lot of direct fighting with him. And then phase three, I tried a couple different things, because there are lots and lots of videos about Ishin out there, if you want to learn about him. And there are things people call cheeses. I would say there's no real, like, cheese strategy for him, because you can't, like, break the game here. Like, if you're doing it, you're doing it. But a lot of ones, like, kind of recommend running around and doing the same thing you would do in his first phase for his second phase. And I just don't think that's a good idea, because he's too unpredictable, he has too much range. That sort of thing is, like, really liable to fail. What you want to do, and what I kept getting dragged back to was a really like direct method of like go face to face with him let him do his attacks and and again hope for a mikiri counter or something like that and get good at it and then the fourth phase is a little more of that with with you know praying for lightning um 
And so it's it's an interesting sort of blend of things that you do to like put this whole fight together and put all the pieces of the puzzle together to beat it. Yeah, that that's very similar to to my strategy for how I beat him is that when he has the sword, you want to try to keep your distance a little bit, especially because if you're too aggressive in his sword phase, he has that attack that is basically he sheathes the sword and then he has like a number of different moves he can do from that point it's basically like a Rekka character in a fighting game where it's like oh now he could do an overhead he could do a low attack he could do a thrust or whatever and those are very difficult to block if you're being too aggressive so it's like the sword thing you want to like be spaced out properly and it feels like a sword duel like you you want to like have your space wait for him to make a move and then kind of exploit that yeah and then when he has his spear out he's got the advantage on range so you want to be up in his face when he has the spear um and be hammering on him and then um just be really sharp on the parries um because because he has a lot of moves that if you know how to block them either like using Makiri counter stuff or by just doing a solid parry on a really big fast attack like you can get his posture bar down really fast in that second phase if you're really on top of it um yes and and, and the logic of the fight there like works for me really well in terms of like actual combat mechanics of like you the swords you're both like evenly ranged. You want to keep your space. Be cautious with the spear. If you're trying to keep your distance too much, he's, he has way too much advantage with that and the gun. So you want to be up in his face, which limits the possibilities of moves that he's going to use. Yeah. I just found like, because I, I, at some point I was watching some strategy videos not to inform my strategy, but, but because I found it so entertaining to see what other people were doing with yeah. it. And it's funny. Some of the methods people call cheeses on YouTube are so much more complicated than anything just that's a direct, like, get good at the game strategy. Like, like some of them, like, there's one that's, like, you would use the the umbrella, and then you would use the, you would get him to do his gun attacks, and then use the umbrella, and then fire that back, and then eventually you're going to run out of your um, paper, or whatever, your... Your, um, your, like, tokens, basically. Yeah, your tokens, and so you're going to have to do this move to get more tokens, and you're going to lose your health, but then you want to go over here to heal, and then you want to do more with the umbrella, and I'm like... This is so much harder. This is so much harder than just getting good at the parrying. But I also find it kind of entertaining that people get into that. I do think there's this like whole cottage industry, though, of people who are so intimidated by the parry mechanic that they, they want to do like anything not to do it, even though it's sometimes much harder than just... Like, I promise you, if, if I could get the parry mechanic down, you can get the parry mechanic down. Yes. It's, it's the magic of the game. It's, it's not... I, I, I hate saying it's not that hard because this game is the hardest game we've ever played. But like it is, it is so key to the game. It's like it's like saying I can't learn another, you know, I can't learn uh, Japanese because of kanji. It's like it's hard, but you can do it. You kind of have to, or else you can't learn Japanese. You know, yes. it's something like that. Which leads me to another award I give to this game, which is the most pure video game mechanic 2019, which goes to parrying and sekiro. Everything about parrying in this game is perfect. Like the 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 timing. The fucking sound effect, the flash that happens on the screen. It is one of the most viscerally satisfying mechanics you will engage with in any video game, I think. It is like just every parry feels so fucking good in Sekido. It is, it is, you know, it's it's like the glory kills in Doom or something. It is just a perfectly calibrated, designed, presented game mechanic that you repeat over and over and over again. And every time you do it is as fun as the last time you did it. Um, and it is you know it's it is the spine of the combat of the game is that parrying and what a a like well-designed spine it is because yeah it is that game is like impossible if you don't know how to do it once you do know how to do it it is the most fun combat of like any game ever 
Absolutely. And I don't know about you, Sean, but I generally hate parry mechanics. Yeah. I think they're often really bad and they're often like unnecessary. So like like you can technically parry in Dark Souls. I don't know if I ever fucking did it because it's like really janky and Dark Souls is good at it compared to a lot of games. Like most games that tell you to parry, like it's just like the mechanic is not good enough. Like you like the game design has to be so unbelievably tight for parrying to be good. And Sekiro is the rare case where like it's up to the challenge of not just making that usable but essential. Yeah, and, and like a big thing about it is just the feedback on the parry is so strong. Like the reason why the parrying in Dark Souls is terrible and I never used it is because the feedback's terrible. It's so hard playing Dark Souls to know when you've done the parry right or if you've done the parry wrong, why you did it wrong. In Sekido, it's very clear. Like if you did the parry correctly, it is imminently clear immediately that you did so. And if you did it wrong, it's pretty obvious why like why your timing was off right like you can tell you might not be able to just do it correctly the next time that attack comes at you but you get why you you were like off um and that's something that dark souls does really bad and something that like there's a parry style mechanic to bloodborne that's really well done and that feels like the stepping because it's important to bloodborne but it's not as essential and it feels like the stepping stone to get us to sekido where they have really refined this mechanic from it being like fine but like not particularly well implemented and easily ignored in dark souls to like an important mechanic that is pretty well implemented in bloodborne to an essential mechanic that is perfectly implemented in sekiro yes absolutely i agree anything else to say about sort of the body of the game i think there's some other things to go into here but um I think we've done a pretty thorough job. Um, the only thing in terms of presentation and everything is we didn't mention the music, and Sekiro has a great soundtrack. It does, yes. It's, it's like FromSoft soundtracks are never the flashiest part of them, but they're always really good. And I think this is the best from a FromSoft game I've, I've heard, at least. I agree, yeah. And it just like sets the tone and the overall aesthetic of the game really, really well. Yeah, it's it's awesome. It's a great like samurai movie score. I could hear this like in a in a movie, and it would work just as well. Um, so that's great. Anything else to say about the the game itself? Um, I guess it's time to give it my last award, um, which is the Buddha presents outstanding distinction for giving people of the modern world a pathway to Nirvana, because when you are in the zone. With Sekiro, it feels like you have achieved enlightenment in a way that is like, I'm sort of only half joking, really. Oh, I mean, it's, it really does feel like meditative almost, but yeah. meditative in the heat of battle, which I think is something you read about a lot in fiction or you see in, you know, like we, we always make the joke about Ultra Instinct Goku because that's what it's drawing upon is like the Nirvana in the heat of battle idea. But I've never seen a video game try to conjure that let alone succeed. I mean, my God, when you when you have those moments, it's it's truly kind of transcendent. It's wild. Absolutely. So we've talked about this a little bit. You've hinted at it. Um, do you want to see a Sekiro sequel? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I don't know and... if that's a like. Here's a direct story sequel. Like the the return ending leaves that open. I would like them to to make another game um, with these kinds of mechanics because. I mean, because again, like, I mean, I played through the game twice in that second playthrough. Like, I've never, well, maybe not never. Maybe Doom is the only other game I can think of off the top of my head that had this quality to it. But that second playthrough of Sekiro, like, instilled a fucking, like, bloodlust in me because you're so vicious. You're so powerful when you go fight the early enemies of that game again that it's just, like, 
you just cut through them like a hot knife through fucking butter. And it's so satisfying that I, I would be sad if we never got that style again from them. Like, I'm happy for them to go um, do Elden Ring, which is presumably more in the Dark Souls style. And I think they've said it's going to have like more of like the RPG kind of stuff. But I would really love for them, whether it's specifically Sekiro, maybe it's a different kind of setting. But at the very least, this much more action-focused kind of game from them um, that's really like sharp um without necessarily having like the breadth of those other games um that's something i would really love to see from some from from software again because again like that is the kind of experience i tried to create for myself in dark souls and bloodboard it's the play style i used anyways so a game that's tailored to that play style is tailored to me and this is one of my favorite games ever it's the fifth best game of the decade i think bloodborne was like my eighth or seventh best game um, when we did that um, episode, and this would just take the place of that. So it's one of my favorite games of all time. So yes, I would like more, please. Yes, no, and I get it. I like look if they if they make a sequel, I will buy it on day one, and I will be excited to do so. I don't like when I was playing it though, and I finished it. This game feels so utterly perfected, complete unto itself. I just can't even begin to imagine the space for a sequel because most games where I finish it and want a sequel are situations where like there's either like a very obvious narrative or mechanical hook for more like like Marvel Spider-Man the Insomniac game does that or there's something like Jedi Fallen Order where like this is very good but it's also got a lot of raw potential that I think has yet to be tapped and that's something that's something like like that where I really want a sequel. Sekiro kind of has neither to me where yeah. like and this is not a criticism, this is praise for the game where like it feels like such a complete object unto itself and it feels so narratively like not closed off. There's it's obviously got an evocative ending but like like complete that I can't even imagine what it would be. I think what your description of like not necessarily a Sekiro 2 but like another game like like whatever the Bloodborne is to Dark Souls, yes. something like that to Sekiro, that's kind of what I would want out of it. Where it's like, in this general style, but maybe something more different that would challenge you to kind of, you know, learn it all again, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's what I mean when I want a Sekiro too. Not necessarily, like, yeah. I would like some DLC maybe to Sekiro. Again, like, if they did a DLC that, like... You know, because they've done that for most of their major games. Like they, the DLC is yeah. some of the best stuff in Dark Souls One. The DLC to Bloodborne, the Old Hunters, is fantastic. Like if they made a DLC that was like you finding Tomoe and fighting her, and she's like the last boss of a, a Sekiro um, DLC, and that like you know, I'll fucking play through that game again to get to the part where the DLC is. Like I'm yes, yeah. please, absolutely. Um, like that's what I would want probably more than anything for a continuation of this specific game. But I would love to see From Software explore more deeply the avenues they've opened up with what Sekido does, um, with like yeah, different characters, different setting, and that kind of stuff would be good. Yeah, I totally agree on that. So yes, it is our number one game of the year. Right? It yes, deservedly... this is our game of the year 2019 podcast. Right? I forgot. <laughs> yeah, still is technically. So our number one game of 2019, easiest number one of all time. Um, you know, it won it won Best Game of the Year at the Game Awards, which is awesome. It went to exactly the right game. Yeah, this um, was a year of awards show giving the best award to the most deserving game or slash yes. movie. Slash movie, because the Oscar gave it to Parasite, exactly. which is also like when I made my top ten movies of 2019, like that was the most obvious number one ever. So good, good, good fucking stuff, Sean. I'm so happy we got to talk about Sekiro. 
A podcast Let's, long in the making. A podcast long in the making, and, and uh, I feel like climbing a mountain for me, and I'm happy we got here. This yes. was so fun. I'm so happy, Jonathan, that you finished this game. Because it's for a long time, it seemed like you were just going to be stuck at Guinea Trope for the rest of your life, and that would have been a sad fate. <laughs> Oh, I would have Sean Sean like 50, 60 years from now I would be on my deathbed My children would be around me And be like Papa is, I don't know why they would say Papa But they would you know, be Dad Is there anything Or do you have any last words And I would take their hand And go Son Genichi And they'd be like What was he talking about Do you hand them just like An old USB flash drive With your PS4 save on it's like What is this arcane Ancient device you finish what I started, yes, son. Pass it on. The next generation will succeed where we have failed. <laughs> All right. Before we leave, I want to give a quick preview of next week's episode. Next week on the Weekly Stuff podcast, I think it's finally time, Sean. Oh. Would you like to do with me a discussion, a review, a breakdown, if you will, of the classic anime Neon Genesis Evangelion? I feel like, you know, we maybe missed the window for the here's when Eva came back and it was very popular, but I've been ready to fucking throw down with some Eva shit whenever, man. So I'll, I'll talk about that. I am fascinated to hear what you have to say about it because we've never really it, talked about it in depth. I know. So it will be an episode of Weekly Suit Gundam, but I will also release it as an episode of the Weekly Stuff podcast. Um, because I think it definitely has some Gundam adjacents, which is why you kind of wanted to discuss it in this fold. But I have started watching the show. Um, by the time we're ready to record our next episode, I will be done with it. And I, to be perfectly frank, we need to set a deadline for me to be done with it, or else I probably will not watch it. Yes. Um, I am six episodes in, and just as a quick preview... <laughs> and just, yeah, it'll be a fun podcast to record. I, you know, I know that we have listeners that really like Eva... But we'll see. I mean, you'd have a lot to go. You know, I mean, I have a lot to go. You're, you're currently I in, I think, what is my favorite and best part of Neon Genesis Evangelion. So if this is your reaction, maybe <laughs> bad sign. Okay. Who knows? But I think it'll be a really interesting talk. I think it'll be a really valuable addition to the weekly suit Gundam canon. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. So, so we're going to have that in there, and it'll be uh, an episode of the Weekly Stuff podcast as well. So that'll be coming up, I think, on the next episode of the show. Quick we question, will... Jonathan, because I feel like we talked about this off the air, but I completely forgot what the answer was. Is Are we going to do End of Evangelion with the rest of the TV show, or will those be two separate things? What do you think I should do? Because I am open. I haven't seen it all yet. Um, I think it would be easiest to do them as two separate things, especially because I think it'd be very, very hard to talk about the end of the TV show if you've already seen End of Eva. So for people okay. who don't know, Evangelion is split into two things. You have the TV show, which is 24 episodes. After the TV show, they made a, um, a compilation movie called Rebirth. And then after that, they made a movie called End of Evangelion, that is an expansion of, and in some ways, replacement of the last two episodes of Eva, which are like infamously sort of like light on budget, let's say, and very have to be very creative. Um, so, End of Eva is a whole movie um, that is very interesting. It'll be an interesting discussion on its own right, but because it sort of replaces the TV show ending, it's kind of hard to talk about the TV show ending. And I think it'd be hard for us to have that conversation if we're also talking about End of Eva at the same time. So, so we will do the 24 episodes of the TV show, and then maybe the week after that, or at some later date, probably shortly after that, we'll do End of Eva. Because yes. at the very least, I'm not going to rewatch the whole TV show, but I will rewatch End of Eva, um, because that's 
that will be a discussion to have. Okay, so I think that's how we'll do it. Before next week's episode, I will have seen the 20... It's actually 26 episodes 26, of Eva. Right. And then... And I will not watch End of Eva. So in the spirit of Weekly Suit Gundam, I will be the newbie who has not seen the other side of the thing. Yeah. We will talk about that. And then there will be a part two with End of Eva. So that will be coming. Um, yes. And, and from now on, by the way, I want to say I'm making a slight change in how we're doing Weekly Suit Gundam. Um, not Weekly Suit Gundam, but how we show those in the main feed. So Weekly Suit Gundam, as its own episodes, will still be in the main feed. And any time we do a Weekly Suit Gundam, I'm just going to probably edit that part of the discussion into a normal Weekly Stuff podcast episode with a Weekly Stuff podcast episode number. So um, you won't see episodes called Weekly Suit Gundam in the main feed, but those episodes will still be recycled into the main podcast. So it just means that it kind of cements for us that I think if we're doing a week on Weekly Suit Gundam, we're not doing a Weekly Stuff podcast. But yes. I want to, I think that's an easier way to do it so everything comes out even. Um, yeah, because we've been kind of way, struggling just... to maintain both podcasts at the yeah. same time, um, particularly yeah. once like work stuff started up. Yeah, so you'll still get just as much content. I'm just presenting it slightly differently. Um, but that'll be next week. It's been a long journey, and, and uh, uh, now we'll, we'll hit that kind of full circle moment, and then we'll see where Weekly Suit Gundam goes from there. But for now, Sean, I'm glad we finished our top ten of 2019 at the end of February. There yes. you go. And this has been a – we've been recording this podcast or and the last podcast for six hours, Jonathan, but we cannot end Game of the Year 2019 without giving out the most distinctive award that our podcast is um, uniquely um, authorized and embodied to give – um, unfortunately, this goes to a game that I did not play this year and did not play this version of it, but I have played this game. So I am authorized on the behalf of um, the Swashiro Estate to bestow an honorary Miyuki Swashiro's Award for Peculiar Excellence to Dragon Quest XI-S Tales of an Elusive Age for her incredible role as the Ice Queen Crystalinda.